I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. Thank you, Ken. Well, what I would like to do today is to talk about loans for commercial property. So, before we do that, why do most investors become a little fearful when it comes to seeking finance for their property purchases? Well, I suppose probably because it's the most complex, time-consuming and confusing aspect of purchasing commercial property if you decide to do it all by yourself. And that's the main reason why I always use and would strongly recommend that our listeners use also is a good finance broker. I mean, it's not that you're not capable of doing it. That's not the the issue. It's simply that it's an unproductive use of your time because not only do you need to decide upon what the best type of finance is, you also need to uncover the best rate and the most favourable terms. And unless you do this sort of thing day in, day out, well, you really don't know where to begin. Right. So how do commercial and residential loans differ from each other? Well, there are a number of significant differences, but with residential property, lenders pay little regard to the actual income generating potential. What they're focusing on mainly is the borrower's ability to service the debt. And that's principally because the value of residential properties can be quickly established through comparison with a large number of similar properties. Therefore, whether it's vacant or it's occupied, it doesn't really make much difference to the lender. But when it comes to commercial property, the income potential is what's really important. And so the length of the lease and the quality of the tenant become paramount. And that is the main difference between arranging a residential loan and a commercial loan is the requirements of the lender with respect to the property itself. What then the main thing a lender will focus on? Well, there are probably three main aspects that a lender will focus upon. And fundamentally, after allowing for all the operating expenses, your lender wants to know, is there adequate income to ensure the mortgage can be serviced? And that's where the length of the lease and the quality of the tenant come in to ensure that that level of income is not only sufficient but will be ongoing. So in other words, the longer the lease, the better, and the better the tenant, the better. So it really comes down to that future cash flow and how secure it is as far as lending for commercial property. Now, the second aspect is what they generally refer to as the debt coverage ratio. And That is calculated by dividing the property's net income by the annual interest payments. So depending on the lender, and they each have their own specific criteria, that debt coverage ratio may range from 1.1 to 1.35 times 
the annual rental. As I said, each lender is slightly different. But generally, as a rule of thumb, 1.2 times coverage of the interest payments by the net rental is generally what's considered to be the norm. And therefore, clearly, the higher the figure, in other words, the higher that ratio is, just the greater the comfort for the lender and the greater the likelihood of your loan application receiving a speedy approval and acceptance. So, as I said, income is paramount, and the higher you can get that number, the better it is. Then the third aspect is what they refer to as the loan-to-value ratio, or the LVR. Now, that's important, and for commercial property, that generally will be a maximum of 70% of the property's value. Residential, you can get 80%, probably a bit more with mortgage insurance. But at at that level, 70%, and they'll require personal guarantees for the loan. Now, it used to be if you dropped that back to 65%, you could get away with not having to provide personal guarantees. In other words, it would be a non-recourse loan. Now, that of recent times has dropped down to 60%. The banks are getting a little bit more conservative. So if you only borrow up to 60% for a commercial property, you can get a non-recourse loan. That means no personal guarantees are required. And it means that the property provides the the sole security for the loan. So if something goes bad, the financier, the lender, has no access to any of your personal assets. Now, if there's a group of people getting together to buy a property, and I mean, as a couple of my clients I've recently helped purchase a larger property, the last thing they want is to have personal guarantees because they're what are called joint and several guarantees. So in other words, if one person defaults, that person's liability then passes to the remaining members of the group, the syndicate or partnership, depending how you've structured it. But with a non-recourse loan, no one provides any personal guarantees and therefore you don't have any exposure other than the money you have invested in the property itself. Perhaps you could just walk us through the actual process of obtaining a loan. Well, there are probably two or three stages that you go through in what you referred to as the loan process. Now, until you actually purchase the property, no lender is going to sign off on every aspect of the deal. And that's where having a broker can make a a huge difference because a broker will build up a good relationship with a financier, a lender, And because they deal with a number of them, I mean, they do it all the time, whereas you and I probably might, depending how active you are in the market, you might only do it once every three or four years. So they are able to obtain indicative terms and conditions for a loan simply by saying that you as a prospect or a borrower, as far as they're concerned, will scrub up okay financially as far as the requirements that are needed to be met. Now, with all my clients, when I take them to the broker, 
I'm aware of their financial capabilities and the broker knows the calibre of client that I will bring to him. And so the lender, because of their relationship with the broker, doesn't first say, well, look, we'd like to see an asset statement and liability statement. So the broker can simply say, look, yep, they're fine. You don't have to worry about it. Based on the fact that they will meet all your requirements, what are the indicative terms? Now, generally, the broker I use can come back within 36, 48 hours with an indicative proposal so that you going into negotiating to purchase a property, you can never buy it subject to finance, not in the current market, but you know pretty much the worst-case scenario as far as interest rate and what have you, as indications from the broker will show. And as you're also aware, I also like to get an indication from the valuer in advance as to the sort of level up to which they would be prepared to support. So you know going in, A, what a valuer will value it at, and B, the indicative terms and conditions that a lender will finance the deal for you. And so you have a pretty firm basis of going forward prior to making your proposal. So you can, with some confidence, then enter into a contract and then get the valuation done, knowing what it's going to come in at, and give that to the broker. And they then can finalise and firm up on the deal and sharpen up on the interest rate as far as your loan is concerned. Now, then you get the what we'll call a post-purchase phase, and that's where you do have to verify your credentials. Now, again, working with a broker, you've got the property under contract, and the broker can help you put together the personal credentials that a lender is going to require. So instead of you going to your filing cabinet or computer and providing a whole bunch of information which is interesting but not necessarily required, the finance broker will very quickly, using the format that he knows that that particular lender that he and you have chosen together is the one you want to run with, what format they require the personal asset liability, etc., to be put together. So he'll help you do that. And so you know that you don't need your own checklist. He's already got that because each financier is different. And compiling that and delivering it to you and will be your advocate, as it were, with the lending source. So once they've got that and probably concurrently with doing that, you've instructed the valuer to undertake the valuation. And uh, as you know, in step six of my investment formula, that it's you that needs to instruct the valuer. Now, traditionally, people go cap in hand to the financier, get the deal, and then the financier organises the valuation. Whoever organises the valuation owns the valuation. Now, you need to maintain control of that and that's why the initial valuation is done as a soft copy you receive a copy so does your broker and the broker takes it to the financier so even though you might be running with one financier the unspoken implication is that look 
yeah, there's a copy of the valuation you'll ultimately end up with. However, we've obviously gone out to other parties and we just want to make sure we get the absolute best deal from you before we ask the valuer to assign the valuation across to you, the lender. Because ultimately, the, the valuation has to be in the name of the lender so that they can have it in their filing cabinet and rely upon that going forward. So, as I said, you need to take control and maintain control of the the valuation process so that you don't have any surprises. So it's not until the very last minute is when you're absolutely comfortable, you and the broker are comfortable with the terms and conditions of the loan. There's no last-minute surprises that they spring upon you requiring additional security or whatever because if that happens and you're two weeks out from settlement you're stuffed i mean you've got nowhere to go but if you've got the valuation and you've got a second choice who has already given an indicative proposal while initially it may not have been quite as attractive as the one you wanted to run with but the one that you wanted to run with have suddenly introduced clauses or conditions that you simply can't live with well, then your second choice becomes very attractive and you don't have to run around and get another valuation. So that's really the secret and the way we do it because, as I said, we already know in step three of the investment formula the value is given the figure up to which they're prepared to support. So you know what the valuation is going to be and you keep control going forward. And after you've gained approval? Well, as I've started to mention, it's only once you are satisfied with everything, and this is where your finance broker guides you, do you assign that valuation to the um, lender. And so that's probably the final step, which I touched on just before. And look, it's a simple process. It's not rocket science, but it's a process that I've found works It's been tested, proven, and found to work. And and I'm talking over 15, 20 years because if you run the traditional approach, you leave yourself open to unwanted surprises at the end. I'm not saying that always happen, but you want to make sure you avoid them. And if the financier knows that they, until they settle with you a deal, they're not going to get the valuation, then they are more reluctant to start to introduce these additional terms and conditions. So, simple process, but it's one that's worked, and I suggest you run with it. Frankly, I had no idea that arranging finance was so involved. Still, you have helped make things a lot clearer, and I'm sure our listeners appreciate your taking them behind the curtain, so to speak. Well, look, as I said, you just need to follow the few simple steps I've outlined and also you just make sure you get yourself a good mortgage broker.